0: Hello everybody, welcome to a new episode of The Dissenter. I'm your host Ricardo López, and today I'm joined by Dr. Sean Smith. He's a clinical psychologist in Denver, Colorado, U.S. and the author of five psychology books. He also writes a blog at docsmith.co and he has a YouTube channel with his name Dr. Sean T. Smith. So Sean, thank you a lot for taking the time to come on the show. It's a pleasure to have you on.
1: Well, it's a pleasure to meet you. Thanks for having me on.
0: Okay, great. So today we're going to discuss the APA guidelines for psychological practice with boys and men. Uh, These were released last year in January, right? January 2019.
1: Yeah, they're almost two years old now, these guidelines.
0: (laughs) Yeah, it's interesting. And I will be posting this interview probably in October, so it will be pretty close to two years. Yeah. Uh, and first of all, what are these guidelines about and what are there for exactly?
1: Well, we'll start with what guidelines are. The APA will periodically put out guidelines which are are designed to sort of give you some structure give psychologists some structure for treating various situations so they might have guidelines on treating depression guidelines on treating uh, you know they had they had a really obscure one recently about dealing with some sort of uh, pancreatic issue or something that, that psychologists should, should be aware of certain issues and they should put certain principles in place and a lot of times these guidelines are just sort of clinical and sterile and and they they don't veer too much in the ideology but they came out last year with these Guidelines for working with boys and men. And then shortly after that, they came out with guidelines for working with girls and women. And these are guidelines that psychologists are supposed to keep in mind when they're working with this population. And these guidelines, unlike some of the more clinical guidelines, are purely ideological, I mean, just from the ground up. It, it's grounded in gender ideology, postmodernism, critical theory, social justice, you know, all of these sort of radical leftist deconstructionist ideologies and and psychologists are now supposed to implement these in the clinic as they're working with boys and men and girls and women
0: Mm -hmm. so these are basically guidelines that they put out last year for people to be aware of certain issues when they deal with boys and men in their clinical practice is that it yeah yeah Mm-hmm. But these issues that they point to are the ones that you say are based on feminist theory, critical theory, postmodernism, gender ideology, and those kinds of things, right?
1: For the most part, and I will be—I have to be fair to the APA—and not—not in—not the entirety of of the guidelines are based on this ideology. There's some stuff in there. Like they even t- they talk about things like retirement and some of the challenges that men face. They they do acknowledge that boys face particular challenges challenges in school um actually they don't address the challenges but they they talk about the fact that boys struggle more in school than, than girls they talk about uh they, they sort of touch on the differences in the way men and women uh, look when they're depressed and and these you know there's there's some useful stuff in here but it's all sort of grounded in this postmodernist ideology yeah
0: and it's mostly focused on something that people from gender studies, for example, call uh, toxic masculinity.
1: Yes, toxic masculinity, which is, yeah, (laughs) that's that's a very loaded term, I guess, these days.
0: Mm -hmm. And it's interesting because whenever people talk about toxic masculinity or even some of the things that we're going to discuss today, uh, I mean, they are assuming that They are influenced by culture or by the environment in some way, and they don't have anything to do with biology, right?
1: Well, yes, there is that. They they do come from the standpoint that gender is socially constructed. That's one of the first of the 10 points that they make in these guidelines is that masculinity is socially constructed. They, they sort of toss out any sort of biological differences between men and boys, or between men and women. They don't even discuss biology. They don't they don't discuss uh, quite a bit of things, actually. They don't discuss cognitive differences between men and women that are very well documented. They don't talk about biological differences. They don't talk about hormones, uh, the endocrine system, you know, none of it. That, that all just gets completely ignored in favor of this viewpoint that masculinity is a social construct, and it has... It's, it's a bad one. It's, it's a cause of mental illness, and we need to stop constructing men the way we're constructing them.
0: And what are some of the aspects of traditional masculinity that they attack the most? I mean, probably we should start with the question about what is traditional masculinity to, to begin with, right?
1: Yeah, so what is, that's, that's a good place to start. What is traditional masculinity? And I, there are traits that cluster around men and traits that cluster around women. So for, so for example, um, the APA talks about things like competitiveness and stoicism, which I don't know if they define it very well, but let, let's operationalize stoicism as containing your emotions, right? So, And that's maybe a good example um, to start with. So competitiveness, aggression, stoicism, these are things that they call traditional masculinity and so let's look at something like stoicism if, if we define stoicism as containing your emotions the ability to uh, sort of manage yourself when things are going bad that can be a real advantage and it can be a real disadvantage so if things are falling apart around you a little bit of stoicism and the ability to contain your emotions is a very useful skill. It's a skill that men need to have. It's a skill that women need to have. But on the other hand, if you're in a marriage, for example, and you're constantly stuffing down your emotions, I actually don't like that terminology because it's very sloppy, but let's say you're you're avoiding your emotional experience with things like alcohol or you're just uh, flat out aggressively... Avoiding your own emotional experience. Well, that's not a great thing to be in a relationship with, you know, that that sort of quality. So this, this quality that they're calling stoicism, I think that whether you classify toxic masculinity, or or, sorry, um, traditional masculinity as good or bad, Stoicism is probably a piece of that. So what the APA has done is they said, well stoicism is just bad there's nothing good about it. there's no redeeming quality to being able to manage your emotions which is they don't say it that way but that's the you know, that's the implication is that the stoic, the stoic aspect of masculinity is simply emotional suppression and nothing else. but if you if you take that same quality and you say, well yes, that's a piece of traditional masculinity and it's a useful thing if it's managed to be able to control your emotions. And that that is something that sort of clusters around masculinity and guys need to be able to do that and women need to be able to do that. So this same trait can be framed either positively or negatively. I prefer to frame it as just a mix of positive and negative, but the APA prefers to frame it as purely negative and purely destructive and purely a source of mental health issues.
0: We're going to talk about the other aspects of masculinity that they present as negative in this case in a minute. But before that, uh, what you described, isn't it linked with a trait that is called self-control? Because I read back, I think, in February 2019 a piece that was written by Steven Pinker, where, when talking about stoicism and the ability to manage your emotions, he linked it with self-control, and according to the literature, it seems that self-control goes associated with many different positive life outcomes.
1: Yeah. um, Psychologists talk about these factors like self-control, and they usually have some very specific uh, definition that they're using. So I don't know what... Stephen Pinker was referring to exactly when he says self-control I, I have a pretty good impression of you know The word is pretty soft. is pretty descriptive. So self-control is something that men absolutely need to learn if you've, if you've read <clears throat> books like uh, Iron John, you know that that fable where the, the the job the job of a man is to sort of tame that that wild animal that's within him And if you're gonna be a man you better acknowledge that there is a wild animal within you and you better learn how to manage it and so If you don't learn how to manage it, then you get all kinds of bad outcomes. The problem with the APA guidelines is there's nothing in there about how to constructively manage that and how men can help each other manage that that woolly wild beast within us. It's all just that it's bad and it's all socially constructed.
0: Yeah. And so these traits, stoicism, competitiveness, dominance, aggression, and others that they mention in the guidelines, they present them as being always negative but in general there are instances where they can be positive traits correct
1: yeah those four traits that they listed that you just rattled off that came from an article they wrote about the guidelines um and we read them again there's stoicism aggression competitiveness and
0: what was was the fourth competitiveness and dominance
1: Dominance. Okay, so each one of those is, is sort of like the yin and the yang. You've seen that symbol of the the, the yin and yang, the, the two fish that are intertwined. They each have a, a positive aspect and a, and a negative aspect, so aggression. You know, aggression can obviously go south very quickly, but if you're not aggressive enough to... Um, defend your values, for example, to go out and and make a speech when a speech needs to be made or stand up for an ideal at work in in your office, you know, stand up for ethics or stand up for the interests of the company. That's also aggression. So so why are we framing it as entirely bad?
0: Mm -hmm. By the way, before we move on to the next topic of the guidelines, do you know if there was any particular reason why they came up with these guidelines i mean is it simply the case that the people who wrote them were influenced by these theories that we've already mentioned or i mean was there something happening uh, uh, particularly in the cultural context or something like that that led them to think that okay so now this is a good moment to Put out these guidelines about toxic masculinity and things like that.
1: That's a really interesting question. I'm not sure if there's something behind the timing of it. You know, I've I've been in the field for a long time, and you know, I was in I was in college for ten years to learn how to do this. So I have a sense of the culture of psychology, and I think there's there's probably a couple of things that motivated it. Number one is that it's a monoculture that psychologists, this is very well documented, that psychologists are overwhelmingly, like we're talking 90% on the left to the far left. And those few people that are on the right uh, study in 2012 found that they keep their mouth shut because this monoculture is not very tolerant. And so if they speak up about their more conservative views, they run the risk of having their careers destroyed. So you have this culture that is extremely, exceedingly one-sided this is how they see the world and everyone around them sees the world the same way and so my sense of most psychologists is that they're just well-intentioned people and they're in an echo chamber. And most of the people who signed off on this document probably didn't really think that there was anything controversial about it because they, they, you know there's a special academic illness where you never meet anybody who disagrees with you. Um, it's not that way out in the real world, but that's how it is in academia. And so most of them, I think, are well-intentioned. There's also, I've met these people, there, there's a contingent within psychology that sees the clinic and the classroom as an opportunity to advance their ideology. They are shameless, opportunistic soldiers in the war of ideas. I've met these people. They're heartless. They're a very small number, but they're heartless. And you know, so when you mix those two elements, you you come up with you come up with a document like this. And as far as the timing, I don't know. You know, this ideology has been brewing in psychology for decades. And if you look back through the literature. Over the last few decades, and from like from the 1950s when literature started getting fairly disciplined till now, you can see this very steady, slow progression from sort of an objective, well, actually not objective. Back in the 50s, they sort of, uh, they idealized masculine traits which is not good either. You know, you shouldn't, why, why idealize one gender over the other? But it's gone, it's gone from a, a slow, steady swing from that in the 1950s to now where we just hate masculinity because it's, we're scared of it and it's evil and it's, it needs to be deconstructed.
0: Mm-hmm. And in these guidelines, do they refer to goals, for example, that they have with, with these guidelines? I mean, what are the kinds of things that they say they want to achieve with this?
1: Well, that's a, that's also an interesting question. There are a couple of paragraphs in the guidelines that are carefully written, but they very clearly, clearly, there's no there's no, um, there's no ambiguity in my mind about how you read these phrases. And I don't have them in front of me, but they want psychologists to be activists in the clinic. They want psychologists to help men deconstruct their masculinity. You know what they have decided is bad. And they want um, they want men to become allies for the feminist cause. And they, they use the word ally in there. So, yeah, that, that's unfortunately one of the things they're asking psychologists to do is to become activists.
0: Mm-hmm. So they want clinical psychologists, I mean, clinical practitioners to become activists in their own activity in their clinics and things like that.
1: Yeah, that's not the only thing they want. They also want psychologists to be aware that boys have some particular struggles, um, you know, that at, at school for example.
0: Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. they say that that's derived from a culture of toxic masculinity.
1: When they're talking about the problems of boys, um, th- they do talk about some institutional, ah, man, it's been a while since I've read these particular sections. They, they if I recall correctly, they do talk about the fact that I I think they hint at the fact that school is not an ideal, it's not built for boys. I I don't know that they would, I I may be misrepresenting their stance there. Larger problem is that toxic men are creating toxic boys and then that's what we need to stop.
0: Mm -hmm. Uh, But they, they say that these traits that men have or that go more associated with masculinity, Uh, they are derived from culture.
1: Yeah, for the most part,
0: yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, because, I I mean, I think that one unfortunate thing here as well is that, uh, I mean, for example, I've already had several evolutionary psychologists on the show, and at least some of these traits are, to some extent, Uh, or have, uh, to some extent, a biological basis to them. I mean, it's not that uh, they are completely cultural or uh, even sometimes it's not something that people can change that easily. And as we've already mentioned, there are instances where they are positive so uh, i mean talking about evolutionary psychology do you have something to comment on that or i mean perhaps the innate basis of some of these traits
1: well yeah there's a evolutionary psychologist named David Buss. He's extremely influential. I really respect the guy. I'm sure you know who he is. He may have had him on the show. I don't know. Have you?
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: Okay. All right. So you know who he is. And he posted on Twitter last week, or actually just a couple days ago, he said, how long is it going to take the social sciences to realize that an evolutionary perspective actually is is useful to them? I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but that's essentially what he said. And I think the answer to that is that they won't For the most part acknowledge evolutionary influences until they shed their ideological bias which is profoundly ingrained so i I don't frankly don't see it happening anytime soon
0: Mm -hmm. yeah but uh, but, i mean if we accept the research coming from evolutionary psychology uh, what do you think people should have done with these guidelines because if they assume that all comes from culture And there are are at least aspects of our evolved psychology that that provide the basis for these traits. I mean, do you think that, in what ways do you think they should have approached it differently?
1: If they had incorporated evolutionary psychology, which they absolutely should have, because it's a beautiful... Um, it's a beautiful corner of the field because the research, yeah, yeah there's a lot of speculation. You can, you can make reasonable arguments in some cases that it's a just so explanation, meaning that we're sort of looking backwards and, and imposing our, our, our way of looking at the world on the past. But that those arguments tend to fall apart for the most part. And it's, it's not ideological. It's although it's unfortunately starting to become ideologically driven. It's more data driven, and it's more theory driven, and it's 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 more objective than other. Well, it's more objective than certainly the people who put together the APA guidelines. And so it's a beautiful piece of of our field. And yes, it should absolutely have been incorporated. And had they incorporated it, then they would have had to acknowledge the fact that men have certain drives, and women have certain drives, and It's not a scary thing. It's actually a very beautiful thing. These drives are very complementary, and we work wonderfully together. You don't need to tear one side down to build everybody up.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and uh, talking about the relationships we establish with one another, I mean, between the sexes, isn't it the case that, I mean, if we start teaching boys that uh, behaviors like the more aggressive ones, the more violent ones, the more stoic ones, let's say, are to be avoided because that has negative influences in their psychology. Couldn't that have some negative consequences uh, in terms of how people establish uh, romantic relationships and things like that? Because some of these traits, at least, are the ones that women look out for.
1: Yes. And one of the traits that women look out for is a man who is willing to stand up for what he believes, who has values, who's going someplace, who's willing to defend his values, who's willing to stand up for the people around him. This is a very, these are very valuable traits in men. And, um, you know, to to simply shame boys. And this is this is my, my main concern with these guidelines is that it's a very shaming message for boys that you're broken, basically. You're, you're just, there's something wrong with you because you're a man. You've got these traits like aggression and competitiveness. Well, if a, if a boy is growing up and he notices that he's got some competitiveness and he's got a little bit of aggression in, in, in the good way or in the bad way, that the message from the APA is shame on you. And shaming people is really a very dangerous and counterproductive way to get them to change because people will rebel against it. And at the same time that you're shaming somebody for having these traits, they're not getting the lessons, well, they, they might not be getting the lessons that they should be getting from older men, which is how to handle these things that are within you, how to handle that, that competitiveness in a way that's productive. Um, so we're, we're taking these lessons that have always been taught by men, which is how to, con, how to grow from a boy to a man. And what I guess the APA wants to do is, is have now women teaching boys how to be men. But not only that, women who resent men are now supposed to be teaching men how to, boys how to become men. And that, that's not a great recipe, I don't think.
0: Yeah. And another thing that I find very interesting is that uh, at the same time that they are uh, putting down masculine traits and saying that they are always negative and always toxic and that we should, uh, we should help boys and men get rid of them in a sense, uh, they are trying to... I guess in a way feminize boys and men, so they are at the same time saying that traits that usually go associated with women are always good. Right?
1: Yeah, you know, I work with I work with couples. Um, I've been doing that for a long time. I, I love working with couples. It's it's very fun work, and heard a lot of complaints about men, you know, women com- women complaining about their boyfriends and husbands. The one complaint I have never heard is, I wish he was more like a girl. Never heard a woman say that.
0: Yeah. And, and, and I mean, obviously, since these masculine traits that we're talking about sometimes can be negative in certain situations. Of contexts, Of course. Context, of course yeah. There are also aspects of female traits or traits that go more associated with women. Uh, where they can be negative
1: sure and it would be just as stupid to talk about toxic femininity as it is to talk about toxic masculinity so I'll I'll give you an example so one of the maladaptive coping strategies that tends to cluster more in men is alcoholism men turn to alcohol more than women turn to alcohol although that is shifting in recent years that women are catching up and may eventually surpass men I don't know but so let's just say that men turn to alcohol more than women so we could say that that's toxically masculine that women that men abuse alcohol but on the other side women abuse prescription medications more than men do so what do we do with that do we say now that that well that's clearly toxic femininity no that that's that's ridiculous um you know, it's just absolutely ridiculous to view a problem in that way rather than just saying okay here's here's something that's not working out very well let's just figure out how to deal with it And it's not representative of either gender that one turns to alcohol and one turns to prescription medication.
0: Mm -hmm. And it's very unfortunate because it seems to me that they have a good opportunity here to uh, put forth a set of guidelines to try to help boys and men dealing with the issues that they have in our societies. I mean, things like alcoholism, as you mentioned, suicide, homelessness, Mm -hmm. problems at school and things like that. And since they are first of all saying that traits that can be positive in certain instances are always negative, and they are basically shaming boys and men for having those traits, and they do not—I uh, mean—they do not care about the biological basis for them. I mean, if even if they are, even if they want to tackle these real issues that men have to deal with. I mean, these won't work, right?
1: I don't think so. Let's, let's talk about suicide. So I will give them credit for acknowledging that men kill themselves more than women by, by a large margin. Um, but then they essentially turn around and say, well, it's men's fault that they're doing this. And I I think that they don't, whereas not long ago, I think the profession as a whole had a fairly good sense of why people commit suicide, and and you know I and a lot of other people view it as essentially problem-solving behavior. It's a way to it's sort of a last resort problem-solving behavior. It's not fun to look at it as problem-solving behavior, but it's a it's a useful way to look at it. And if you understand the problem-solving behavior, then you can then you can tease out well what problems are we trying to solve with suicide, and maybe we can come up with some other op- some other options. What the APA has done in these guidelines, even though they acknowledge male suicide, they essentially blame men. You know, it's your fault because you're men, because you act like men. And because you act like men, you can't handle emotions. And because you can't handle emotions, you kill yourselves. And that, you know, they're in their defense, there might be an element of truth in that. But it's 10% of the problem.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and another very interesting thing, and since we're talking here about also some aspects of, ev- of our evolved psychology, uh, one interesting thing is that if we look at countries that uh, are usually classified as being more gender equal, like, for example, in, North Euro- in Northern Europe, like mm-hmm. Sweden, Norway and countries like that, One interesting thing is that for several several years now, they have been trying to uh, break down the gender stereotypes and things like that. But it seems that those are precisely the countries where the differences in terms of occupational choices, educational choices, and even some uh, personality traits... Uh, are um, the biggest between men and women
1: yeah isn't that interesting and this is something that jordan peterson has has been uh great at at pointing out And in fact i don't think i knew about it before he pointed it out so i'm glad his voice is out there but when you give people choice and freedom men and women choose tend to choose different things not all the time but there's definitely some clustering of career choice and, and isn't that fascinating that men and women have different desires?
0: Yeah. And and, okay. So I was thinking about this because I also wanted to ask you if, I mean, if these things were to start to happen more in other countries, like for example, the U S what would they do after that i mean because if they want to reduce these so-called toxic masculinity traits in society i mean it's impossible basically
1: yeah and and we do see that in the u.s you know we have a lot of freedom here the freedoms uh, going away in some respects which is really sad it's kind of heartbreaking actually but what you know, what we're starting to see here in the u.s is Uh, people of the progressive mindset starting to close off options to certain populations so that they can get the the gender equal outcomes they want now it's always in one direction we want more female ceos but we don't want more female trash collectors you know that we don't need we don't you know we we don't want Something like 96% of workplace deaths are men. We don't want to even that out. And I'm not arguing that we should. But, um, you know, it's always in one direction. And it's always with a political agenda that we want to create equal outcomes, even though people don't want equal outcomes.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. And in clinical practice, and since you are a clinical psychologist, um, are these guidelines in any way mandatory? I mean, is it that clinical practitioners are obliged to follow them in their practice?
1: Nope. These guidelines are, as far as I know, all of these sets of guidelines are aspirational, meaning that whether they're talking about pancreatitis or schizophrenia or whatever it is, there are certain thresholds certain standards that you should aspire to meet and that's the case with these guys they're aspirational so for someone like me who is in private practice I can completely ignore them and I don't push any political agenda in my clinic so I'm I'm you know it has no effect on me but here's the problem the apa the american psychological association is the accrediting body for psychology training programs in the u.s and they also set the tone for all western cultures uh, or western countries in terms of their accreditation process so what that means is that if you want to start a psychology training program you're going to have to have it up and running for several years, and you're going to have to go to the APA, and you're going to have to find out what their guidelines are to get accreditation, and you're you're going to have to try very hard to meet those guidelines perfectly because they're going to come in, and they're going to inspect you, and they're going to make sure that your classes meet their guidelines, that your graduation rates meet their guidelines. Everything needs to meet their guidelines, and they're very high standards. And the reason this matters is that if you graduate as a psychologist, or as you, if you graduate with a PhD in psychology you want to become a psychologist which means you have to get licensed Um, employers look at accreditation and licensing bodies look at accreditation so if your program wasn't APA accredited you're going to have a much harder time it's not impossible because there are there, it can be done, but you're going to have a harder time getting a job and you're going to have a harder time um, getting licensed if your program wasn't APA accredited. So that means the APA has a tremendous amount of power to go into training programs and say, you better be instituting these guidelines, even though they're only aspirational, and you better be getting your students to institute these guidelines in, in whatever work they're doing after they graduate.
0: Mm-hmm. And do they already have some training programs on toxic masculinity or not?
1: You know, I've been out of school for, <laughs> I graduated like 15 years ago, so it's, it's been a while. I know that every APA accredited training program has to have these mandated um, diversity and inclusion courses and so if it shows up, it's going to show up there.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh- But are there specific training programs that, for example, let's say that are there specialties in clinical psychology, let's put it that way, where people have to take specific training programs and then, for example, things that have to do with these APA guidelines would appear in some of those programs? I mean, that people have to be informed of these guidelines to be able to practice in certain contexts?
1: Yeah, that's an interesting question, and I don't know the answer to it. I can tell you, though, what I am hearing from clinicians. Um, I'm hearing from clinicians, and and you can hear this in all kinds of professions here in the U.S., that their administrations, their their managers, their leadership are forcing them to go through this sort of uh, postmodernist training, whether it's the 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 gender stuff, or now, of course, the you have to go through the anti-racism training, which is, uh, again, very ideological. Um, and so that, that's what I'm hearing, is that you know schools and administrators seem to really love this stuff. Frontline clinicians tend to want to ignore it, I think, because they're dealing with different kinds of problems. They're dealing with human beings. And when you're dealing with a human being face-to-face, and you're finding their story, it's really hard to stick to the ideology that is, that is so divisive and, and angry, and uh, it just doesn't work with actual humans. So this is a real, I guess what I'm saying is there's a real split between actual clinicians and then administrators and bureaucrats who really wanna push this stuff for their own resume. Mm-hmm.
0: So what would you tell a boy or a man that arrives uh, at your clinic, for example, and says that he is frustrated because people in in our current culture are pushing against some of the traits that were associated with traditional masculinity and they feel better if they follow certain let's say impulses or certain behaviors that derived from these streets and now they are feeling pressured by society, by women, by these political activists to conform to a kind of more feminized psychology?
1: Mm -hmm. Well, I, I don't. I guess to answer the question directly, I, I don't know what I don't know what I would say to a boy who said that because a, a boys, well, for I don't work with um, teenagers and below, so I, I only work with adults. I'd be surprised if a boy came in and was that articulate about it. He may be experiencing it, but kids don't typically have that kind of language, and they don't have anything really to compare their experience to. So they may feel frustrated and depressed and agitated and crawling out of their skin and climbing the walls, but probably not going to connect it to, I'm getting these messages of shame. But I do hear it from men fairly routinely. And part of that is selection bias because of who I am and how vocal I am about this. I tend to draw certain send to tend to draw a certain population. I I draw men who are not afraid of their masculinity or trying to work out their masculinity. And I hear their frustration routinely. And you know, I I try to stay as apolitical as possible, but I do hear the frustrations of men who have been taught that being feminine in their relationship, for example, is 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 going to work. Having the feminine um Feminine communication styles and feminine traits and feminine uh, ways of moving through relationships that that's what they're supposed to strive for but then they get into relationship relationships and it works out horribly for them because women aren't looking to date girls typically unless that's what they really want to date heterosexual women usually aren't interested in that they actually want to date a man and so you have these men who are being taught all of these messages about being feminized and then it works out terribly for them and that's the frustration that I hear
0: yeah uh, and we already mentioned some of the real problems that men have to deal with in our modern societies at least. Uh, do you do you think that there's any problem when we try, when we try to gender these problems and say that, for example, domestic violence is a gendered issue and it affects women. I mean that it's something that men do to women and why i mean whenever we talk about domestic violence we almost always hear cases of a man domestically abusing a woman but not exactly the other way around
1: yeah and it is pretty pretty evenly split violence is evenly split by both genders now men and women do it differently and men obviously can do a lot more damage than women but women do violence uh, they're they're not uh women who turn violent they're they're not innocent themselves either we're human beings and aggression you know that level of malevolent aggression is part of who we are we're 98 percent chimp and chimps are violent animals and so you know part of the reason that we're far less violent than other animals is because of masculine um that masculine stoicism that ability to kind of manage your that ability to manage impulses is is a very masculine is something that men have to learn so anyway with gendered supposedly gendered problems like domestic violence it doesn't help anyone to say that they're gendered problems because what really matters is the dynamics behind violence what's causing a person to turn to violence when they could be using using their words as we tell our kids and so women you know they they tend to use that they're as violent They're violent as often or a little more often than men, but it's different. They tend to use lower level of violence, like slapping or pushing or throwing things. They tend to use objects more than men. They tend to corner their men, which is really dangerous behavior. Cornering somebody when you're in an argument, you're blocking the exit and... You know, the the woman is blocking the exit. The man wants to leave. And it happens the other way around, too. I'm not saying that only women do this, because men will do this, too. But it's more of a feminine way of doing aggression, which is to catch somebody when they're vulnerable, when they're in the shower, when they're sleeping, when they're trapped in the basement and they can't get past you without pushing past you. This is incredibly dangerous behavior. And to say that violence is a gendered problem ignores that sort of dynamic where women are behaving very dangerously. And, and how do we help women by pretending that women don't also become violent when women stand to get hurt the most if things actually spin out of control? It's, it's a very silly way to approach the problem.
0: And since you deal in your clinical practice mostly with, I mean, talking about boys and men, and men, of course, you deal mostly with Adults. Uh, what are some of the biggest issues that they report to you? I mean, in in our modern society, apart from what we've already mentioned, what are some of the biggest psychological issues that you deal with in your clinical practice, for example?
1: When couples come to me, it's usually just pretty the the run of the mill stuff that you would expect. Like people are, um, they're they're having trouble they have some pattern that has developed some communication pattern, some behavioral pattern where one person is just really fed up with it. And the other person is fed up with the first person being fed up. And so you know, it's, it's really run of the mill stuff, catching those patterns before they turn into full blown resentment and finding some other ways to handle those situations. And once in a while stuff comes in the office, like domestic violence. And when I have on those occasions, when I've, I've, dealt with domestic violence it's pretty evenly split you know sometimes it's the man sometimes it's the woman
0: Mm -hmm. yeah so just one last question regarding these apa guidelines and how people think about them i mean do you would you like to leave any final message to boys and men that might be listening to this interview i mean if they are if these guidelines get in their way in some way, or if they are, uh, or if someone tries to shame them because of the Mm -hmm. masculine traits that they exhibit, I mean, how should they deal with it?
1: I I love that question. And these guidelines are just the cliff notes to a much larger problem. It's a movement in society that, that men are bad, men are damaged, men need to stop being men. And my message is, stop apologizing and don't go where you're not wanted. If you're working at a company that is going to shove gender ideology down your throat, go somewhere else. You know, you know, why, how many years are you going to be on this planet? Why would you spend your time around people who resent you? So don't work places where you're not welcome. Certainly don't date people who have a problem with men in general. And I would say the same thing to women. Don't date men who have a problem with women in general. You know, just stop apologizing. Walk with your head up
0: okay great so let's end on that positive note and sean uh, i have already mentioned your blog your youtube channel any other place on the internet where people can find you
1: well i'm on twitter and my handle is at iron shrink and i do have a book out there called the tactical guide to women which is a horribly misogynistic sounding title but it's really about men having standards for their relationships because this is something that men are aren't really taught the way women are taught it's something that women do very well for the most part, they talk to each other about standards. Men don't talk to each other very much about how do you choose a relationship that's gonna work out well for everybody. And that's what this book is about.
0: Okay, great. So I will include that in the description box of this interview and people go and check it out, the blog, the YouTube channel, the book. It's very interesting. And Sean, again, thank you a lot for taking the time to come on the show and it was really fun to talk to you. Thank you, Ricardo. Have a good one hello everybody thank you for watching this interview until the end i've started this channel back in february 2018 and have been putting out regular interviews with academics and intellectuals from a variety of fields and i would really like to keep doing this in the long run and so please visit my patreon page and consider making a pledge there Or go to my PayPal links in the description box and you can also make a monthly pledge there. Or a one-time big donation or several times big donations. It's as you prefer. Otherwise, and if you like what I'm doing, please share it, leave a like and hit the subscription button. Finally, I would like to give a huge thank you to my patrons and supporters, the main ones Karen Litska, and Blanchett, Parerga Larson, Lau Herrero, Francis Ford, Hans Frederick Sunda, Ricardo Vladimiro, Craig Healy, Adam Kessel, Olaf Alex, Jonathan Wiesel, David Diaz, Anian Kata, Jacob Klinkwe, Matthew Whittingbird, Arnold Wolf. Tim Hollissy, Enrique Alenius, John Connors, Paulina Barron, Philip Force Connolly, Jerry Mueller, Herbert Quintis, Ruth Voss, Bo Weingard, Rebecca Newberger Goldstein, Dan Demetrio, Robert Windegger Rui Nassio, Arthur Coe, Zup, Marco Neves, Max Bailby, Colin Holbrook, Susan Pinker, Thomas Trumbull, Bernardo Seixas, Pablo Santurbano, Simon Columbus, Jorge Pinhe, Phil Cavana, Cory Clark, Mark Blythe, Robert roberto inguanzo michael Stormir, eric neumann samuel Andreev, tiago nunes bernard yugni alexander dunbauer Omari hickson felicia stevens fergal Cassen, evan badrenko al herzog nuno machado don ross joão alves da silva jonathan leibrand oslam Bulut, nathan Nguyen, uh, staten t samuel correa eric heinz mark smith jw joao eira tom hummel Sardos france david sloan wilson Assila Deza araujo eden Solon, romaine roach and dimitri Grigoriev, my producers is our web jim frank Lucas stafiniak ian gilligan sergio quadriano luis caetano Matthew Lavender, Tom Vanegdam, Curtis Dixon, João Linares, Benedict Muller, Vega, Vega Giddy, and my executive producers, Michel Ruzeski, Rosie, and James Pratt. Thank you for all.